What makes a proper Thanksgiving meal? This week, I'm sure some of you were able to enjoy special favorite items that only come out once a year, while others of you no doubt had to endure traditional horrors that issue from <laughs> smoky kitchens. Americans love Thanksgiving. It's our second favorite holiday when polls are taken. When it comes to the feast itself, we usually go big. That's what Americans do. Did you know that 20% of all turkeys eaten in America in a given year are eaten on one day, Thursday, Thanksgiving? Uh, one out of every five turkeys is eaten on that one day. I don't know who's eaten all that turkey, but... At the Thanksgiving table, the average American eats upwards of 3,000 calories. And to that I say, way to go, team. I mean, just really good job. We're number one on that, no doubt. These last few years, of course, between COVID or lockdowns, spiking food costs, strained relationships, maybe Thanksgiving dinner looked a little bit different for some folks. Or maybe you're just the kind of person who wants to go non-traditional each year. One way or another, most of us had to think through and make a plan for what makes a Thanksgiving meal. Now, in ancient Israel, there was a prescribed meal that individuals could bring to the Lord to his house as an act of thanksgiving. It was known as the peace offering or the fellowship sacrifice. It's also called the thanksgiving sacrifice in some of your translations. It had some pretty interesting features in comparison to the other offerings that people brought to the tabernacle or the temple. First, it wasn't just the burning of an animal on the altar. This offering did include an animal sacrifice, but it was offered with a meal. It was presented with unleavened cakes that were mixed with oil and unleavened uh, and leavened bread, excuse me. And it was an offering that you would share with the Lord. You know, with a burnt offering, the whole animal was put on the altar and burned up. With a sin offering, part of the animal was burned outside the camp. Some of its blood was splattered here and there. And then the fat of the animal was dealt with on the altar. But the Thanksgiving offering was a little bit different. It was a meal that you shared. The Lord would consume his portion on the altar. The priest would be given some of the meal, and then the offerer would take the rest to enjoy with his family or any other ritually clean person and eat it that day. This special act of worship even had its own soundtrack, which was provided in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 100. Now, many Psalms are full of thankfulness, of course, but this is the only Psalm that is identified specifically for the giving of thanks and paired with the Thanksgiving offering. And even though it was the accompaniment for a particular ritual in the Lord's house, it is by no means limited to the time of the temple or the tribes of Israel. It's a song that's given to all the world, we'll see. And it invites us to consider God and to be reminded of his true love toward us and then to praise him with joyful thanks. But it doesn't only tell us to do it. It shows us how we can. It shows us what makes a proper spiritual thanksgiving offering to the Lord. And in that sense, it's like a recipe given to us so that when we come together into what we call the Lord's house, we are able to present a faithful, joyful thanksgiving offering to our God. So the psalm begins, a psalm of thanksgiving, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. You know, we can't imagine all the nations of the world unified in one heart, worshiping God. 
Doesn't that seem like a fantasy beyond any science fiction movie we've ever seen? Mankind today is too divided, uh, too antagonistic against one another. We see within our own nation the fracturing effects of sin and selfishness and pride and anger. But this verse reminds us that one day all really will be reconciled by the power of Jesus. Jesus is going to establish his kingdom and all will be made right. In his kingdom, all the nations of the world will flow to the mountain of God to worship him in person in his house. Instead of shouting at one another, as we are so prone to do in this day and age, we will be shouting with one another in praise of the king. And that day really is coming. It's not just a pie-in-the-sky pipe dream. It's not just a vision of utopia that we're never going to see. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to live in that kingdom. And you're going to see that day when all is made right and all is redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. That day is coming. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, this verse, Psalm 100 verse 1, is both a prophecy and a keepsake. It's something we should keep close to our hearts and close in our minds because we know that we will receive this coming kingdom. And because we know that and because it's promised to us and because the Lord is going to do that on our behalf, the book of Hebrews tells us to apply Psalm 100 right now and to do so with thankfulness and with worship. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 12. The first direction we're given in bringing thankful praise to the Lord is to shout triumphantly to the Lord. Now, on average, as a group here, we're a more conservative and more reserved group. That's okay. Different people uh, have different levels of exuberance, levels of loudness, levels of excitement when they gather together. Different cultures are, are, have a different level of exuberance. Uh, the culture of Israel in the Bible, we see they do a lot of shouting, they do a lot of dancing, they do a lot of loud noise to praise the Lord. And that's not necessarily the kind of culture that we have, and that's okay. But there are times that we shout in exhilaration, aren't there? And in times of exhilaration or anticipation or excitement, for example, we shout on roller coasters on average. People shout when a home run sails over the back wall. Imagine this, imagine going to a concert where one of your favorite bands is playing and you've, you've set aside the time that evening, you've driven to whatever town where they actually have concerts that isn't Hanford, you, you paid like a billion dollars for the ticket and the surcharges on top of the ticket, you did all that stuff, you found your seat, you got there in time, you got ready, and then the lights dim, right? Wouldn't it be strange and weird if as the band come out, came out, they came out to silence. Everyone would think something weird is happening. What happens instead? Instead, when the crowd enters, even before they perform, you don't know if they're even gonna do a good job, but even before they perform, the crowd erupts in excitement and in praise of these people that you've come to see. Now, God has made each of us with personalities and peculiarities, and that's fine. But as a people, as a creature, God gave us emotion. We're not like lizards who just like sit there staring and kind of lick our eyes every now and then like on the cartoons, right? We're emotional beings. Why? Because God is an emotional being. God has emotion. He has joy and he has, he has sorrow and he has love and he has feeling. 
He has a heart in the sense that we think of that word. And, and so he has made us emotional beings as well. And his desire is that we be enthusiastic when we worship him. Now, none of that means that we do, do certain things for show or to look a certain way to those sitting around us or, or those who happen to see us. Worship is never about drawing attention to ourselves. In fact, that's the opposite of worship. But the Lord clearly desires, as we go through the Bible, particularly in the book of Psalms, it's obvious that the Lord desires that our worship be lively and enthusiastic from our hearts. Now, what does that mean for, for you and I as individuals? Well, that's something that you're going to have to work through with the Lord in your personal relationship with him. But God desires enthusiastic praise that is welled up from our hearts and then comes out from the overflow of our hearts. It's not that we whip ourselves up externally and from the external we do certain things with our hands or we do certain things with our faces or we do certain things with our bodies and then from there it goes down into our hearts. The opposite is meant to be true. That a lively, loving enthusiasm grips our hearts and fills us up and therefore we, we praise the Lord in a genuinely enthusiastic and lively way. That's what the Lord is looking for. The Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it this way. We are not to be subdued in our praise to him. When we gather, the attitude of our hearts should be one of anticipation and, as the psalm here says, one of triumph because we are coming into the presence of God himself. Listen, God is always with us. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God lives within you. You're never, you know, he will never leave you or forsake you. It's not that you only worship God in the confines of a, a room like this. No one's saying anything like that. But when we gather together, a special business is done. The Bible's very clear about this. When God's people in a local fellowship come together and assemble in order to worship him and hear from him and be in his presence, he is able to do a level of work that he does not do when we are alone with him. He does a different level of work when we are alone with him. And so when we gather together at the very base foundation, we are to gather in an attitude of anticipation and triumph. Because if you're a Christian, you've been ransomed by Jesus and saved from sin and death. Because our Lord is the one who will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. By him, we are victorious over sin and suffering and struggle because our God is true and he is alive and he is with us. Now, for individuals in Israel, the Thanksgiving sacrifice was a free will offering. And you being here today, you have gathered here by your free will, freely gathering and, and, and coming to offer, hopefully, an offering of thanksgiving and praise to God. To do so begins with a mindset of anticipation and triumph and enthusiasm for the Lord. Now, of course, this can be the attitude of our hearts at any time, and it should be. But when Christians gather together, there is a wonderful, unique ability for us to praise God and for him to minister to us in special ways as a group. 
Bible commentator Joseph Benson writes this, in all acts of religious worship, whether in secret or in our families, we may truly be said to come into God's presence, but it is in public worship especially that we enter into his gates and into his courts as expressed in Psalm 100. Verse two continues, serve the Lord with gladness, come before him with joyful songs. To worship God is to serve him. Some of you know that the Psalms employ this type of writing where often there will be a phrase and then the idea of that phrase will be repeated again in the next phrase. Or sometimes there will be a phrase and then the following phrase will explain what the author means. And so here we see, serve the Lord with gladness. Okay, how do I do that? Come before him with joyful songs. It's giving explanation to what you just read. Now, this is not the only way we serve God, of course, but bringing an offering of thankful praise to God is an act that he delights in. Singing is serving, according to the book of Psalms. We've all had to learn to bring certain things with us when we want to go certain places, right? Depending on where you want to enter, depending on what city or county you're in, you have to think to yourself, okay, do I have my mask? Do I have my vaccine passport? These are things we have to get used to, to thinking about, right? When we come into the assembly of God's people, this verse would have us ask ourselves, okay, do I have my glad and joyful song? Did I come into God's presence with this thing that so pleases him and that is an act of service and thanks toward him? Did I bring it or did I leave it behind? It's often difficult to feel joyful. We know that. We're hurting, you're hurting. Those around us are suffering. We have shortages and concerns and pressures and fears. God knows all of these things. So how could he be so callous as to ask us to be glad as if those things aren't happening? Is he some sort of cosmic Marie Antoinette who's ignoring the real problems that we deal with? Well, of course, we know that's not true. Here's how God describes himself in the Bible. This is Psalm 56, verse 8. Speaking of God, we read this. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. The Bible shows us that our sufferings, though unpleasant, are in the mind of God. But more than that, they are immensely useful when it comes to forming us into the people God wants us to be. And they are immensely useful in demonstrating the power of God to a lost and dying world. And they are immensely useful in personally drawing us nearer to this God who loves us and who wants to work in our lives. To give way to joy in the midst of suffering or sorrow or struggle, to be able to do that is one of the greatest abilities and gifts that God has given his people in the Christian life. We see such a perfect example of it in the book of Acts. There, beaten and bleeding while fastened in agonizing stocks, we listen in as Paul and Silas sing praises in a dark dungeon. It did not feel good to sing. It did not feel good to be in that position. They were in, enduring intense, agonizing suffering. But in that, in that moment, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, they gave way to joy and allowed themselves to not be filled up with hatred or resentment or bitterness or anger, but to be filled up with joy. And guess what? The world was changed because of it. And it goes on being changed because of it as that story is told in language after language and generation after generation, place after place. They gave way to joy. And that is a perfect example of what God wants to do through our sufferings and our circumstances. Now, verse two also helps us to remember something tender and precious. 
when we gather together and come before God with joyful singing, one of the reasons we do so is because that is what he is doing for us. Listen to this precious verse in Zephaniah chapter three. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. So as we sing to the Lord in praise and adoration, the Lord says, when you do that, I sing over you. Of course, God is not worshiping us. He's not adoring us in that sense. God alone is the object of worship. But he says, I sing over you in gladness. I put melody to my rejoicing over how much I love you and how glad I am to be with you and to, to make you my people. And as you sing to me, I sing back to you. That is a precious, wonderful thing. Now, someone might ask, okay, but how can I be happy to worship in this way if it is an obligation and I'm being told to do it? And so if it's an obligation, well, how can I be truly happy to do so? Well, first of all, the choice is yours. Like all of God's commands and restrictions and directions, the Lord calls us to this life and to this mindset. He does so for our good, but he will not force you to obey his word. Maybe you came in today thinking, Lord, I want to worship you. It just hurts so bad. I just can't be joyful. The Lord understands he's acquainted with our sorrows and our griefs. He loves you. He is working in your life to accomplish all of his good purposes in you. He knows all of the pain and all of the fear and all of the distraction that you're dealing with. He really does. He's keeping track of it in his book. And in the midst of all of that, he invites you to worship him gladly all the same. He says, just do this, do this and have your heart changed. May have the world changed because of the praise of your heart offering me glad thanks. Think of it this way. If you were being asked to dig a hole all day, it might seem like a chore to be sure. But what if you were asked to dig a hole alongside those who love you the most? And what if you were promised that at the bottom of that hole, you knew you would discover a priceless treasure that would belong to you? I imagine we would all happily take up the shovel. And so if you came through the doors today, say, Lord, I just, I just can't today. I can't fill myself with joy. You don't have to fill yourself with joy. It's the spirit that wants to fill up your heart with joy. If you will make room for it, if you will invite him to do what he wants to do and say, Lord, I, at, at your word, I will. Verse three says, acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Worship is more than just a feeling of exuberance and gladness. To be true, it must find its source in who God is. Listen, the pumpkin pie that you ate this week had more ingredients than just pumpkin gloop, right? You can't just put pumpkin gloop in a pan and call it pumpkin pie. It needs other ingredients for it all to come together and to be that thing that you want it to be. And so the problem is, and sometimes we look out in the wider Christian culture and we see what is being called worship or what is being called, you know, exuberant praise. But the problem is it is all patterned after the methods of the world. And it's all patterned after how does the human feel? How does the human look? What sort of activities can we mark to identify that, oh, real praise happened? And it ends up being very human in orientation. And so what verse three is telling us here is that, hey, it's not just about an exuberance. It's not just about a liveliness. We have to move 
from the heart to the head and connect both of those things. And to be true worship, it must find its source in who God is. We are to acknowledge who he is and who we are in relation to him and what his intentions for us are. We can't worship rightly or effectively unless we know the truth about God. And this is why church worship that is purely emotional or just whipping people up into a type of behavior that which doesn't have proper theological content or understanding, that style of behavior is ultimately unsatisfying because it makes the human experience the focus and the goal. It makes the human feeling the purpose of what they're doing. And in the end, we've disconnected from what we're supposed to be doing. If, if our worship together as a congregation is all about our feelings or eliciting a certain kind of behavior from the congregation, then it won't be on target because the aim is all wrong. The Lord must be the focus because he is God and he is to be the object of our adoration. Now, of course, the unbeliever says, well, there is no God or I'm God or it doesn't matter if there is a God. But as we see here and in so many other verses, this is a matter of supreme consequence. And so when we gather to offer thanks to God, we must pause and acknowledge not only that God exists, but who he really is, who he has revealed himself to be that he is the creator and therefore owner of all things, all things in the universe. It is his breath in your lungs. We sing that song, it's a great song, but that is a truth revealed in scripture in Isaiah chapter 42. It is his breath in your lungs. And it is by his grace that the sun rose this morning. And it is by his grace that your heart keeps beating this morning. It will do so more than 5,000 times before you leave this service today. That's all by God's grace. This God has called out to us and communicated to us, to all the people of earth, through all generations, and he has invited us to know him and follow him and give ourselves to him. Why did God made us? The verse says God made us. Why did he do so? He didn't have to. He wanted to. He made us as special creations. We alone are made in his image. And he made us exceptional above any other creature or object in all the universe so that he might love us and so that we might commune intimately with him for all of our lives. He made us to be his chosen people so that he could adopt us into his family. And as this verse says, we are his. We're not belongings like those sad trinkets that are in the bottom of a drawer somewhere in your house. But we are his, his special people, his prized possession, the apple of his eye, the pearl of great price that he gave up all his, uh, everything for. He left heaven so that he could redeem us. He gave up his only begotten son so that we could have a chance to be saved. He made us and we are his. And the Bible in page after page shows that he is our maker. He is our master. He is our father and our redeemer and our friend and our king. And as this verse says, our shepherd. We are a lot like sheep, human beings are. We're not too smart. We're not too strong. We like to group up. We need to be cared for. We need to be shorn on a regular basis. By the way, research shows that we are getting dumber as a species, generation after generation. They said, and they don't know why, but at each generation, the average IQ is dropping by about seven points, they said. But that's okay, because we have a good shepherd who knows how to care for us, dummies that we are. We have a shepherd who has made it his business to lead us to green pastures and beside still waters, to bring us to places of growth and rest and satisfaction. Sadly, there's another 
thing like sheep that we are. We, like sheep, have gone astray, each and every one of us. That's what sin does. We're all sinners, and it drives us away from this loving shepherd and from his gentle word. We've gone our own way, but that's why Jesus came, to pay the penalty for the wrongs we've done and to stand in our place and receive the punishment for our rebellion against God. And he did all of that. He died and he rose again, and now... He is our shepherd, gathering us and tending us and carrying us in the folds of his garment. You belong to God. He looks at you and he says, you are mine. And he loves you. Verse four says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. You know, you can't just go to the houses of important people, right? There are a lot of rules when visiting the White House, when that's even allowed, or the Vatican or Buckingham Palace. J.K. Rowling was in the news last week because some activists post her home address online. You know why that was a big deal? Because J.K. doesn't want you going to her house. You know, she just doesn't. I don't want her coming to my house. I mean, so that, that goes both ways. But consider what God has done. The king of all kings has flung open the doors to his house and he has invited all the world to come in. And when you get into it and realize not only has he invited us to visit, he says, I want you to come and stay. And not only do I want you to come and stay like it's a hotel, I want you to come and become members of my household with whom I'm going to share my inheritance. But who may enter? David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, asked that question back in Psalm 24, and here was the answer, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now that presents a problem. It's a big problem. You know why? Because none of us have clean hands and none of us has a pure heart. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And so how can we come in, Lord? We can because not only has he opened up the way into his house, God also has taken it upon himself to clean us before we enter and to give us his perfect robe of righteousness. In Isaiah chapter one, God says something dramatic and astonishing. He says, come, let's settle it. Though your sins are as scarlet, I'll make you white as snow. It's accomplished by the power of his grace through the blood of Jesus offered freely to those who will believe and receive his salvation. When we approach God in faith and obedience, he will take us poor and wretched as we are, and he will clothe us in his garments of salvation, his robe of righteousness, and thereby we can enter into his presence unafraid and undefiled and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Knowing what God has done, how could we not rush in with thankfulness and praise and exuberance to just love him with our worship? Verse, show, verse four shows that once in, our duty is not to try to prove ourselves before God. Our duty is not to work to keep the robes he has freely given us. He's not trying to tear them off you. He gave it to you. It is yours. Our duty is simply to receive from him and worship him and love him and grow ever nearer to him. Charles Spurgeon wrote, so long as we are, we are receivers of mercy, we must be givers of thanks. The proper spiritual Thanksgiving meal includes blessing his name, verse four says. It's not just that we're generally happy to be alive or generally thankful that God exists, but that the focus of our praise be God himself, who he is as revealed on the pages of scripture, and to bless his holy name. 
the name of Jesus, which is above every other name in greatness and power and authority. His name is perfume poured out. At his name, the demons tremble and are subject. There is salvation in no other name, but in the name of Jesus. And it is a name which means Yahweh is salvation. His other name, Emmanuel, means God with us. As we come into the Lord's presence, we should fill up our thoughts with who God is and what he has done. Because he's still the same. His power does not abate. His greatness does not diminish. His kingdom will never end. His love will never fail. This is who God is. And we've gathered together here this morning to be in the presence of this God in a special way who has promised to walk in the midst of this candlestick, this group of living stones that he has drawn together to knit one together and to be a living house in his presence. And we are to bring him an offering of thankful praise. Verse five seals it up and says, for the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever, his faithfulness through all generations. We've heard so many times again and again that God is love. But you know, what, what would it matter if the quality of his love was lacking? Don Juan was a fictional character who devoted himself to loving, quote unquote, many women, right? Or we see famous womanizers out in the celebrity culture today who in some sense have a great capacity for what they call love. And we look at it and we say, well, that's not love at all. And they say, oh, sure it is. I love lots of people. But it's an impure love, a love of self in the end. But that's not how God loves. His love, we're told, is faithful. It is true. It is characterized by mercy and loyalty and acts of deliverance on our behalf. He has bound himself to us with this love, not because of what we can do for him, because we can't do anything for him, but because of his desire to lavish us with his salvation and his help and his kindness and his affection. This love revealed in scripture is the standard by which we must measure goodness and compassion and affection. This is the standard by which we should love others, our spouses and our friends and our neighbors and our enemies. God says, now love them like I love you. It's a faithful love, not based off of what others can do for you, but God's love working through you. And in reflecting on all of this, our hearts should well up with thanksgiving in lively praise before the Lord. Christina Rossetti wrote in 1875 a great poem titled In the Bleak Midwinter. It's a rarer but really great Christmas song these days. Speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming, she wrote this. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give my heart. And this is what we can offer when we gather to be together in God's presence. When we come together for a church service, the Lord says, come in with your glad and joyful song and offer from your heart a, a lively, enthusiastic worship that considers all of who God is and all of what he's done and what he still promised to do and all he has done on your behalf. And how we can focus on him despite the distractions and the difficulties and the fears and the hurts that we got. And as we focus on him for these few minutes to worship him, the things of earth can grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we're filled up with his joy, as we're filled up with thoughts of his love and his greatness. Hearts that are full of thanksgiving and thankfulness and understanding for what God has done. Psalm 100 shows us that one way we can give our hearts is through actual singing. 
the praises of our king. No longer did we have to cart in sheep or rams or bulls to be slaughtered here at the front of the church as their blood flew flow out all over the place. We don't have to do that anymore. Praise the Lord. Now we get to bring in melodies in a banquet of worship together, remembering that as we sing to him, he sings over us as he rejoices in gladness for us, knowing that every hurt and every sorrow, every fear will one day be dealt with because our Lord, our shepherd has overcome them all. And now we can live life in his presence as members of his house, full of strength and satisfaction because of the joy he has won for us. Let's pray.